He grabbed me and I started working for him out of college, you know, while, while I was actually still in college. But man, that's a guy that, to me, character was about everything that he did. You know, it was the driving force behind every adventure that we had. And it was a real luxury to be able to work for a guy like that who made it a priority because it improved and made my life great. You know, I mean, the people just that I got to meet as a consequence was extraordinary. But Joe Ritchie, for those that don't know, I, I just a shout out to him. I mean, Joe, Joe. Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Dan Cooper. Dan, thanks for doing this. It's great to be with you. So, Dan, tell us about Rock Investments and and how you guys classify return on character. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I always love talking about what what I'm doing because I believe in it so deeply. But Rock Investments is an investment strategy that was started over 20 years ago. I developed it with my mentor Joe Ritchie, who is a, a Chicago trader and pretty well known in the industry. But basically, it allocates capital. We allocate capital in the public markets purely on the basis of of an analysis that we conduct on the character. Uh, of the CEOs leading those companies. Rock Investments has created a public ETF for any and all to be able to to invest and allocate that way. But our focus is to be the best in the space, the world at understanding this kind of segment of the market. And character is, it sounds nebulous, but it's actually something that all of us kind of have an intuitive understanding of. I mean, you know, our grandparents and hopefully our parents were always hoping we develop our good character. And sometimes it helps people understand. We, I mean, we define character four different ways and and it really stems from the research that this gentleman named Fred Keel did in his book called Return on Character. It was a seven-year study on the impact of character and CEOs. And he defined character in four different ways. One is integrity, you know, telling the truth, keeping your promises, real basic stuff. The other was responsibility, taking responsibility for personal choices, admitting mistakes when, when, when you mess up, embracing responsibility for serving others, trying to leave the world a better place. And then the third one is forgiveness, which, you know, you wouldn't initially think, but it's a huge part of just the, the internal constitution of character. And that's letting go of one's mistakes, letting go of other people's mistakes focusing on what's right and not wrong. And then the last one is compassion. And that's empathy for others and asking for help and empowering others. So we at Rock, Rock Investments, is, we, we mine the world for those markers, those behavior habits and in CEOs and their leadership team. And we organize it and we quantify it and we build a portfolio around it. So that's a little bit of our, our story and what we do. So, you know, it's funny, we were just talking about regulations before we got started. So staying within what you can say, can you talk to us about kind of the financial outperformance of folks with character? Well, like, yeah, Rick, in the world of, of the regulated SEC environment, I can't talk about back tech. And I can't really speak to specifics, but what I can do is kind of point to a lot of the research and my past experience that kind of gave us the confidence to, and it originally when I, I launched the, uh, my first character fund in the early two thousands, and it was inspired out of the book, good to great, you know, Jim Collins went out there and tried to find what companies outperformed over time. And he reluctantly came to the conclusion that it was a set of behaviors that I, that basically mimic character, you know, in these CEOs. And, and so I took that understanding and I built, and so that, that was one point of data that I think points to outperformance over time. I took that data and built behavior-based interview systems and quantified the degree in which 
certain CEOs actually in the market then fit those criteria and built a portfolio around it. And we outperformed for four and a half years. I went on to try to build a railroad in Africa for a number of years, came back and, and that same outperformance continued for 20 years using the, using just this one criteria. And then I also discovered Fred Keel's book, Return on uh, Character. And he did a seven year study on the effect of CEOs and he called them virtuoso CEOs and self-focused CEOs. And this, this book was published by Harvard Business Review and widely acknowledged is to be incredibly credible. And he proved the CEOs that outperform, the character CEOs outperformed by five times that of the CEOs that are more self-focused as measured by return on assets. And so there's all that data, but just, you know, it, there's also the gut data that we all kind of know that, you know, being a jerk doesn't win in the long run. It might win in the short run, but, but people that just behave with honor and inspire their employees and, and are considerate, create teams and companies that I think are far more enduring than those that create companies where, you know, use fear as the primary motivator. And, and so we have data, we have research, but we also have the collective experience that character matters. And, and for the first time, it's the first public ETF that was approved by the SEC that allocates character on the, uh, allocates money on the basis of behavior. And we focus on character as the primary behavior point that we look to identify. And so in a way, kind of bringing to life something that everybody knows, not just in America, throughout cultures. You know, that was one thing that was interesting that Fred's book, uh, Return on Character Outline, is that the four characteristics, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion were basically universally understood to be character in every, every culture, you know, and all we're doing is picking up the scraps that Wall Street doesn't value and putting a value to it. And, and I think it, you know, I think it matters. I think, I think it's, if you looked at it purely from just an investment standpoint, I think it's an incredible approach to identifying alpha. And then of course, from the impact standpoint, if we can start directing investment towards leadership that behaves this way. I mean, Jess, you know, it's like to work for a good CEO versus a bad CEO or a good boss versus a bad boss, you know, and how it makes you feel and how it then affects everybody around you and how, whenever you're driving home, whether you're mad or angry in the community that you interact with and how you enter, you know, you, you greet your kids when you come home. We think the trickle down is huge as far as impact and the more we can promote that, the better. Yeah. You know, I feel like we need to start with a, with a shout out to our mutual friend, Lindsay Hadley, who got us connected here. And, you know, you talked about your mentor, Joe Ritchie. I'm such a fan. I, I've been able to spend, you know, I was able to spend some time with him over the years, just at different events of Lindsay's. And, and I was telling you, I got to go to, we, our media company came out and filmed a thing with him and Hugh Jackman's wife and the first lady of Rwanda. And he really embodied that. So I'm not surprised that you're so into this. By the way, I don't know why I didn't buy the Fred Keel book last time we were talking. I just bought it right now. And anybody, I don't know when you're listening to this, but on May 5th, 2022, it's a 50% discount. You can go get the Kindle for 16 bucks. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, it's an amazing book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk about Joe because he's had such an outsized impact on your life. 
life and on people I care about, you know, specifically Lindsay. And I'm, I'm obviously friends with his kids out here and stuff like this. And it is fascinating to me the level of patience he was willing to have in order to be working with the people he considered the right people to work with. You know, like those people of character, like it didn't have to be something immediate. It just like, no, this is the person we want to associate with, you yeah. know? And that is like, I don't know. I think I, I've been programmed to be like all about efficiency at all times, in all cases, everywhere, you know? Yeah. And it's like, sometimes the longest way around is the shortest way is the fastest way home. You know, like, yeah. you know, I want to just get on the road and start running, but sometimes like staying a building in airport is actually a faster way to get to the other side of the world. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I, I'm glad you brought up Joe, you know, Lindsay and I share uh, a deep affinity for him because he mentored both of us. I, I worked for him for 12 years. And you know, when I, when I first ran into Joe, all I knew how to do was kill poison ivy. I had of course poison ivy killing business. <laughs> I was known as Dan Dan, the poison ivy man, you know, and Boston. And for some reason he saw something and he grabbed me and I started working for him out of college, you know, while, while I was actually still in college, but man, that's a guy that to me, character was about everything that he did. You know, it was the driving force behind every adventure that we had. And it was a real luxury to be able to work for a guy like that who made it a priority because it improved and made my life great. You know, I mean, the people just that I got to meet as a consequence was extraordinary. But Joe Ritchie, for those that don't know, I, I just a shout out to him. I mean, Joe, Joe was a kid who grew up in Afghanistan when he, for four years, he went to Wheaton college. He, he was like second from the bottom of his class, you know, Wheaton college. And he got this job out of college initially to drive buses and, and, and it was a jail guard became, got another job at a special, a precious metals trading company and became the head trader in six months and went on to grow the largest options and futures firm in the world in the eighties. And, and he's just, he was just a genius, both from the standpoint of his ability to mathematically, but he also had this incredible gift of interrelationships with people. And those two don't often coexist. And, and as a consequence, we did a lot of things together. You know, I mean, Joe was the one who originally first bet on character. It was through Joe that we, I formulated the first portfolio and first allocation. We built a list of CEOs and, and invested his money on, on the strategy. And that's the strategy that we now look to today to justify our our current approach yeah well i'm just thinking for the listener like i have the background of knowing him and you and i yeah. talking before this can you give people some more context on like what this means like what what like can you like i love when you were telling me the examples of like what it, the kind of questions that you ask analysts and other people in the industry to try and make your decision of who has character or not can you give people some examples of the kind of questions you ask investment analysts and other people in the industry to try to figure out who really has character versus who just puts on a good show yeah one of the leading questions i ask is you know the companies people are familiar with tell me about a company or a ceo that would put the interest of the company ahead of his own person oftentimes the list is not long you know and that's what we're used to tell me about a company that or a ceo that's more humble than they are arrogant you know or tell me about a a CEO that when things went bad, they owned the mistakes. They didn't point fingers. You know, these are little things. You get sadder. I'm guessing you get more than just a name. I'm guessing you get a story. What, what, what are those conversations like? That that's what's fun about it is you 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 hear stories and there's stories that you know Wall Street doesn't have any way of valuing. 
you know, and, and putting it in their equation for, you know, why Costco should be trading more at a premium than say another company, you know, Costco is a great example. You know, one, one, one story that Jim Sinegal told me, the founder of Costco, after he had left, he, he, he had left and we'd formed a relationship over the years, but his, his predecessor, Craig was the CEO and in their, in their diamond jewelry box, they, they had, they had labeled certain diamonds as cut light Tiffany diamonds. And Jim said, yeah, I knew maybe that could run into some problems. And he said, sure enough, one day somebody forgot to put in cut like, and just put in Tiffany diamond, you know, in the case. And, and sure enough, Tiffany comes in and lawyers up and, and Costco's uh, lawyers lawyer up and Craig comes in. He goes, he goes, no, we're not going to fight this. We're going to own it because we screwed up. You know, we messed up. And it was totally the opposite of what normally lawyers would, would think you should do in a situation like that, especially at a corporate level that's so uh, significant. But he owned the mistake and, and tried to make it right. And to me, those are the kinds of stories that matter in a, if you're investing in a company for the long, long term, not on a quarterly basis, but if, if you're a long-term investor, you want to know that, that leaders tend to behave that way as opposed to the other way, in my mind. And lots of times, I think there's a lot of people that care about that stuff. And, and that's what we're trying to find and value and give an opportunity to to invest in. You know? Yeah, it's such a great story. I mean, it makes me think about the Tylenol CEO who immediately pulled all Tylenol in all stores everywhere. Yeah. Right. When they had that, yeah. when they had that safety issue of somebody was opening Tylenol bottles and, and contaminating them. Right. And it's like, yeah. it's such an uncommon thing to have that level of character that like, I mean, that had to be two decades ago and we're still talking about it. Right? You're still talking about it. And I guarantee you every lawyer in his office was saying, no, we can't do that. You know? And, and, and the thing is, is that what's nice about our approach is that you don't need a lot of CEOs. You know, we have 106 CEOs right now in our portfolio. So you don't expect that the majority will behave this way, but it is fun to identify the tails of the bell curve, you know, and, and as a consequence, you know, these, these companies, these CEOs also tend to create better cultures and there's all sorts of kind of carried on benefits. It's interesting in Fred Keel's book with his, all his companies that he identified as the top virtuoso CEOs had a lower debt ratio and a higher return on equity or return on assets over time. In our analysis, all our companies are the same way. They have a lower debt on average and higher return on, on, on equity. So there are patterns that you can identify to, to try to trip you up and try to not trip you up, but help you identify CEOs that will likely more often than not step up and own a mistake versus trying to dish it off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we like to cut these interviews in half. Uh, I think it's a good place to wind down for part one. Um, maybe what we could finish with is, can you tell us a Joe Ritchie story? that had an effect on you. Yeah, yeah, I could tell a Joe Ritchie story. You know, one of the great things about Joe Ritchie is that he always, he, he would use his influence and his money to try to move the needle on a situation in the world that he thought people were missing. And, and he did it without any self-interest. And so an example of that was his efforts in Afghanistan. He grew up as a young man in Afghanistan and he became wildly wealthy and successful. And he always wanted to go back to Afghanistan and help. And two years prior to 9-11, Joe and his brother James were 
in relationship with the king of Afghanistan. And so we started engaging with the king of Afghanistan and that led to an engagement with the, with Abdul Haq, who was a former commander that fought the Russians. And we craft a plan to overthrow the Taliban pre 9-11 and was working in Washington, D.C. at the highest levels around this plan when, when 9-11 happened. In fact, Joe and I were on the State Department steps on the morning of 9-11 to have a meeting with Christina Roker, who was the woman that we'd been working with for two years, to tell them that Abdul Haq was going to go ahead and begin the plan of overthrowing the Taliban, which essentially meant that the commanders of the Taliban were going to flip loyalty to the king. And we were, we were in Washington, D.C. on 9-11 to have that meeting. And we looked up and black plumes of smoke were coming over from the Pentagon and the meeting never happened. And then all of a sudden the world cared. But one of the things that Joe did was that, you know, I mean, he would, he, he, he would say like, sometimes he feels like God sends him an envelope with an assignment and he, and he, he looks at the assignment and he kind of looks at what he has as far as his skills, resources and everything. And, 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 and he decides whether or not he should go and give it a try. And, and this was a scenario where, you know, he felt like he had enough tools in his tool belt to give it a try to, to shift the course of the nation. And he wasn't afraid of his reputation in failure. He, he had the courage to, to step out and try. And in this case, you know, it didn't work because we were, you know, we found ourselves in the middle of one of the biggest global events of our time, but we were right in the thick of it. And, uh, and Joe had the courage to try. That's a great Joe story. One that should, there should be a movie about him before he did him and his brother, Jay. You know, it's so fascinating. Like I, I, you know, partially through Lindsay, but, but otherwise, like I've been able to spend some time with a number of different billionaires and they are almost all doing some good in the world. But for me, like it was so interesting being around Joe of like just the humility factor and the hands-on factor. Like most of the other billionaires that I've worked with, they're doing good things. They really are. But like, I feel like Joe led the pack of like going and doing it himself instead of just having it done. And like in part two, we'll for sure have to talk about the work that you guys did together in Rwanda and just like, just how hands-on and like, yeah. you know, like Lindsay's like, oh, Joe wanted this. We're thinking about trying to help out in Guatemala. And like Joe gets on the flight to go down. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, he always used to tell me he said, you know, when 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 you're giving or helping in a situation, the further you get away from eyeball to eyeball, the higher the odds are that you're gonna do damage. And and so, you know, he wasn't one of these big check writers that kind of wrote a check and walked away. He was he was in the he was putting his life on the line at different times, you know, to to try to make a difference. And 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 the reason it wasn't out of it wasn't out of the posture of look at me, I'm doing so much good in the world. He looked at it like, are you kidding? Do you realize how lucky I am to be able to get to do this, to be able to try to shift the course of Afghanistan or to sit next to President Kigali and, and try to help him think through his country problems? He, and he would, he would sometimes with tears in his eyes, are you kidding me? This is the most extraordinary thing in the world. He goes, I don't care if I lose money on this at all. I mean, the, the chance to be able to play this role was something he felt was a great privilege. And, and, and so, 
that's how he looked at it. And and most people don't look at it that way. And as a consequence, you know, Joe, Joe died in, in February, you know, nations have him to thank for some, you know, consequential things that he did for them because of his kind of hands-on approach and his ability to go in there and, and communicate the problems and try to bring solutions. He is a unique man that I don't, I don't think the world will soon see another one of them. Yeah. So, so sad to lose him this year. Um, and, and in other ways, he really does live on through the effect. And like, and I know we give him a lot of credit. Like, what a great family. Like, I remember uh, Lindsay invited us to this thing. It was like the first social impact fund to partner with the Vatican that she had helped found. And yeah. we got to go over there. And like, I'd never been to the Vatican. I thought it was so cool. It's like Danny DeVito and like the number two cardinal for the whole Vatican running this like venture capital event, right? Yeah. Like, how could you do good in the world? And my wife, sat there with his wife for so long talking about homeschool and kids. Yeah. And, and anyways, I just feel like what a what a positive legacy to be able to leave and and kind of like big shoes for the rest of us to step into, right? Yeah, yeah, no. And he modeled something for us all. And uh, and I think we carry that forward. I mean, he's at the center of everything that I've ever done. And to me, that really is the essence to have the courage to try despite the odds. You know, yeah. and Joe always tried in scenarios where he thought he could really make a difference. And lots of people would say, well, you know, my odds of failure are really high, so I'm not going to do it. That's not his, that was never his equation. And he had his wife, Sharon, was the one that enabled him to do all this stuff. I mean, she raised 10 kids at home while Joe was, I mean, in Russia and Iraq, Afghanistan, Rwanda, Malawi, Guatemala. Pan. I mean, you wouldn't believe all the places he was that Sharon kind of stewarded the home front with the kids. Yeah. But, and, and, and great kids, too. I could give a uh, shout out to, to Eve and John Aarons, too. So, listen, I think it's a great place to start in for part one. People, if you want to learn more about Dan, go to ROC Investments. Dan is connecting on LinkedIn, probably the best way for people to contact you, or what, what, yeah. uh, what can they follow you? Yeah, LinkedIn is great. Dan Cooper, rockinvestments.com. And, and love to hear from anybody interested in what we're doing and appreciate a community that values character and wants to invest in it. Love it. Okay, everybody, tune back in for part two. We're going to be, I got so many more questions for Dan and I got some really interesting Rwanda stories that uh, I think you're going to like. So thanks.